Well, good afternoon. Glad to see you guys. I, I, I just want to say thank you, as always, for being here at noon. It really does create space in the earlier services. And so I'm thankful that you chose to join us at this lunch hour. Now, a couple of months ago, there was a conservative pundit, and he released a feature-length documentary that really had people within the LGBTQ uh, conversation kind of buzzing, all right? Now, the, the, the idea behind this documentary was that he was going to go around and he was going to interview medical doctors and professors and psychologists and gender activists, random people on the street. And he's going to ask them one question and one question only. The question that he asked all of these different groups of people is, what is a woman? That's the question, right? And it seems like a pretty straightforward question. It should have a very simple and obvious sort of answer. But of course, the hook of the movie is that in conversation and interaction after interaction, there are people like really stumbling to answer what should be a question that has a pretty straightforward response. What is a woman? Now, I, I, I enjoyed the movie in, in one sense. I enjoyed it in the sense that like it was super awkward. And I'm a fan of awkward stuff. The Office is my favorite show. I could watch that all the time. And so when something is cringy and weird, I'm just like, yep, I'm here for it. And it was full of that. I mean, there was a lot of really strange interactions and responses and, and those sorts of things. But in truth, the reason that it was so awkward and the reason that there was very little progress or fruit from any of these conversations was that there was a fundamental miscommunication between the guy asking the questions and all the people who were trying to answer the questions. See, what you notice, if you pay close attention to that film and really any sort of discourse in our world world today is that people will often use the exact same terms as the other, but they define them in a very different way. And then the conversation never goes anywhere. Nothing is ever communicated because although we're using the same language, we have different meanings attached to those words and portions of our language. And so, yeah, it's not really surprising that in that film or in discourse in the world today, very oftentimes we're talking across one another or over one another. So as we kick off week two of this series called He Made Them, I thought it would be good if we started with some definitions. Like we defined a few of the key terms in this subject so that we're all using the same words in the same way. Now, I I understand how like not great it is to start a sermon off by reading from the dictionary. I get that. That is not lost on me. I work so hard every week to craft incredible introductions that will grab your attention from the very beginning. And I'm about to start reading definitions to you. I understand that. But my hope is that by the time we get done this morning, you'll see why this is necessary. If we want to, if we want to have fruitful conversations, then we all have to understand what the words that we're using actually mean. So why don't we start by defining the word sex? Unfortunately, not that kind of sex. It would be a much more entertaining sermon if we were talking about that kind of sex. No, in this conversation, when we talk about sex, we are talking about the biological markers that define someone as male or female. Are you with me? Biological markers that they define or decide whether or not somebody is male or female. So a person, a person is biologically male or female based on four factors. So the first is the presence or absence of a Y chromosome. I have one. 
Amber does not. Okay. Uh, the presence, or, I'm sorry, the, um, yeah, the presence of our internal reproductive system. So if I went and had a surgery and the doctor were to cut me open around the waist, he would find some things on the inside arranged in a certain way that are typical of a biological male. And if Amber had to have a surgery, when the surgeon uh, cut her open, he would find a different set of internal organs arranged in its own specific way. Right. The third thing is external sexual anatomy. So genitalia. And then the fourth is our endocrine system in our brain produces hormones that create secondary sex characteristics. So for men, that's usually like hairier bodies and deeper voices and more muscles and those sorts of things. Right. So sex relates to somebody being male or female is biological, physiological, anatomical. That's what we're talking about. Gender is related, but maybe a little bit different. Gender is the psychological, social, and cultural aspects of being male or female, okay? So we'll break that down a little bit. Like, as a male, in my mind, I have an understanding of what it means to be a male and live as a male in the world. So gender is my psychological understanding of my maleness, right? Um, we, we see this relationally. So women will interact with other women or men in certain ways in relational contexts, and then and um, culture puts expectations on people based on whether or not they are male or female. So gender is slightly different than sex. It is in relation to um, these um, internal and external experiences of being male or female. So the usual terms that are related to biological sex are male and female. And the usual terms that are related to gender are man and woman. For years, uh, these terms, sex and gender, have been synonymous. You could use them interchangeably and everybody kind of understood exactly what you were talking about. We all knew that maybe there was a little bit of a difference between maleness and manhood, but we could use male or man, and the context would kind of dictate whether or not we're talking about biology or identity. But in the 1950s, psychologists started to separate the concepts of sex and gender, and, and they really kind of articulated them into the definitions that I just read for you today. Uh, by the way, this separation of these two things, this is at the heart of the miscommunication of that what is a woman documentary that I was talking about a moment ago, because in actuality, the interviewer was asking the question, what is a female? He was very clearly looking for what is a female? That's the, the response that he was asking that question over. But everybody in the interview, everybody that's trying to provide an answer was actually saying, well, this is what it means to be a woman, right? So one of them was related to biological sex. One of them was related to gender. And again, that's why they never could communicate well. Now, I realize that some of you are here and you're hearing all of this. And you're like, oh, come on, sex and gender are the same thing. We all know they're the same thing. They've been the same thing forever. Part of the reason that we've gotten into all the confusion that we have today is because we're taking words and we're redefining them and nobody can agree on anything anymore. So if we would all just agree sex and gender are the same thing, then we could move forward and get into a productive position. Well, not so fast, okay? If we really do want to have fruitful conversations, then we have to acknowledge the fact that other people use words differently than we do. Okay? And we may not agree with their definitions, but unless and until we understand that they are defining those words differently, and until either we can get on their side or they can get on our side, we're really never going to be able to move forward. So um, the typical response from like traditional people like myself is like, yeah, y'all are wrong, so you need to jump over to my side and then we can move forward. Actually, what I think is we could probably, as Christians, as you know, people on the traditional side of gender ideologies, we could actually agree that there is some, somewhat of a difference between sex and gender. I think that that's perfectly reasonable for us to say. Not that they're unrelated altogether, but that we could have some nuance as to exactly what those things might mean. In fact, there's some scriptural
scriptural support to the idea that sex and gender are closely related, but not precisely the same thing. Let me show you what I mean. If we go to Genesis chapter number one, verse 27, we read this verse last week. It's foundational to these conversations. We'll come back to it multiple times in the coming weeks. Genesis 127, we read, so God made human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Now in Hebrew, the word for male is zakar and the word for female is nekebah. All right, Zakar, Nekeba, male and female. And we know that in this passage, uh, the writer has the idea of biological male and biological female in view because the very next verse says, then God blessed them, said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Basically, y'all need to get together, get busy, make some babies, okay? And in order to do that, you have to have a biological male and a biological female. So the context tells us that Genesis 1 has male and female biological sex in mind. But when we jump to Genesis 2, which is an expanded telling, an unfolded telling of the creation of Adam and Eve, we see something that's related, but maybe a little bit different, okay? So uh, God has put Adam into a deep sleep. He's created Eve from his side. Adam wakes up from the divine anesthesia. He looks over and he's like, whoa, what is this? And he says in, in Genesis chapter number two, verse 23, Q out of James, at last. <laughs> The man exclaimed, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman. Now notice, it doesn't say she will be called female. It doesn't say she will be called nekebah. Instead, it says she's going to be called woman or isha. Because she was taken not from male, not from Zachar, but instead taken from Ish. Ish and Isha in Genesis 2 are the words for man and woman. And we understand from context again that Genesis 2 really has more, um, it has more of the gender um, connotations in mind because the very next verse here says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. The two are united into one. This is more of a social understanding of what it means to be male and female with in a culture or a society. Because what is a culture or a society? It's a bunch of different families that have decided to marry into one another and form a community together, right? So I'm not, I'm not like advocating for the idea that modern gender theorists are right and sex and gender can be completely split. They have nothing to do with one another. But what I am saying is there's at least some biblical warrant for the idea that we can specify the differences between sex and gender without completely separating sex from gender. See, one side gets the this wrong. Whenever they say that sex and gender are exactly the same thing, they're not. And the other side gets it wrong when they say that there is no relation between sex and gender. There absolutely is. Okay. All right. Two more definitions. And then we're going to move on to, to some other interesting things here. Uh, the, I want to uh, define two phrases for you this morning. The first is the phrase gender identity, gender identity. You've probably seen and heard this. This is probably the key phrase in all of these conversations. All right. Gender identity is one's internal sense of self as male, female, both or neither. Now, I know some of you guys are like, what? No, I'm out. Forget it. This is stupid. I'm not even engaging. Just stay with me. Roll with me. I'm merely telling you how the world defines these words so that when they are used, you understand what they're saying. In modern gender theory, your subjective gender identity, your internal sense of self can match your external biological sex. That means you are, that's uh, being cisgendered. The, the uh, prefix cis means same. So your mind and your body are the same. You're cisgendered. 
or in modern gender theory, they can be crossed. And you're transgender. The prefix trans means crossed, different than. And so your mind and your body are different from one another, okay? Uh, gender identity, one's internal sense of self. And then the last phrase that we'll define this morning is gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the distress that some people feel when their internal sense of self doesn't align with their biological sex. So for someone who's never experienced gender dysphoria, this is kind of hard for us to wrap our brains around, right? Like I've never experienced it. Um, lots of you have not. And so you think about this and you're like, how do you not feel at home in your own body? Like, I just can't even imagine what that would be like. It's just hard for me to even comprehend. Okay. But we have to be careful not to dismiss something simply because we don't understand it. See, gender dysphoria is real guys. It's a very real thing that many people in our world suffer from. And, and although I might, we might disagree with the treatments for gender dysphoria, when we are, when we're face to face with somebody who's experiencing it, or when the idea that the realization that there are many people in our world who do have this internal sense of distress, when that hits our minds, we should feel compassion for them. Like we should hate the fact that there are people that suffer in this way. And our attitude as Christians should be like, man, my heart breaks for you. I want to help in whatever way I can so that you can experience the life overflowing that God's always intended for you to have. Now, one more thing that we need to articulate here about gender dysphoria before we move on is that um, scientists and researchers have absolutely no idea what causes it. We have no clue whatsoever why some people feel this internal disconnect between their self and their external body, okay? So um, it could be biological. So it might be that eventually we discover the brains of trans people are in some way different or the hormones are in some way different but so far, we have not seen any differences between cisgendered and transgendered people. We haven't been able to identify a biological cause. It could be psychological, right? Um, it could be that there is an internal disconnect and it comes about not as a result of biology, but it's psychology, it's the mind. It may have been messages or trauma. And so, you know, that's the root cause. Or it could be social. We could be living in a time in which people who feel different hear that you can be born in a wrong body. They see other people living as the opposite gender. And so they think, oh, that's my problem and my solution as well. We have no idea whether it's biological, psychological, or social. It's probably a mix, but nobody has any clue to what degree it's this or that, all of them, something else altogether. Okay. In my mind, that means that we should probably be really careful about prescribing solutions to problems that we can't even fully define. Like particularly when it comes to permanent solutions or mostly permanent solutions, if we really don't know what the problem is, how can we say that we're actually alleviating the problem itself? We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. We don't really understand what causes gender dysphoria. It's real, but we don't understand where it comes from. Okay, with all those definitions out of the way, I wanna ask a question that's really at the heart of this entire conversation, okay? This is the key question that people on both sides are constantly wrestling through and wrestling over. This question is super important, and it's this. If a person experiences incongruence between their body and their mind, which one determines who they are and why? So like in a gender dysphoric person, their internal sense of self doesn't match up to their external biological sex, okay? When that happens, are they their mind or are they their body? 
you understand where I'm coming from with this question? This question rarely ever gets asked explicitly. Instead, the answer is just assumed by people on both sides. So one side says, when there's a disconnect between your mind and your body, obviously you are your body. That is the correct answer, obviously. On the other side of the discussion, you have people that are saying, when there's a disconnect between your mind and your body, obviously the mind is the real you, and you need to bring your body in line with your mind. Well, it can't really be that obvious if both people think that their position is obvious. In fact, it's not really enough to merely state a conclusion, which is what both sides end up doing. Follow your mind, follow your body, right? You can't just state a conclusion. You actually have to provide evidence, warrant for why your conclusion is the better of the two conclusions, right? So what I want to do for the rest of our time together this afternoon is I want to help um, maybe articulate and illuminate some reasons that when there is a disconnect between your mind and your body, following your mind instead of your body creates a lot of problems. It creates philosophical problems, creates logical problems, creates theological problems. And so um, I, I'm going to at least surface these things so that we can talk about them. I may not convince you, but I want to do my best to surface some of the issues that say, you know what, follow your mind, ignore what your body says. Now, next week, what I want to do is I want to talk about why aligning the mind with the body seems to be a healthier and perhaps even a more biblical approach that God really does want us to experience a, a, a cisgender, so to speak. He wants us to, to experience an alignment between our sense of self and our body. And when there is a case of conflict, the body should take priority. We'll argue it from the opposite side next week. Okay. Let's, in order to not just talk about this philosophically, okay, we want to talk about this in terms of people and experiences, okay? So let's imagine for a moment somebody named Chris, right? Are you imagining Chris in your mind? You can close your eyes if you want to. Just stay with me and imagine, though. Chris is a biological male. He is 17 years old, pretty handsome guy, got dark hair, all right? And although he was born a biological male, for as long as he can remember, he's always felt like something was different or off about him in relation to other people. In particular, into his identity as a guy, a, a man, a boy, however you want to phrase it, he's never really felt like things matched up quite the way they did for his friends or other people that he sees in the world around him. He's always been more comfortable around females than males. He's never been interested in like traditional boy stuff. So he didn't like monster trucks. He doesn't like wrestling around and playing in the dirt. He, he does not get ice hockey at all. Okay. He's like, what is the point even of all of this? Instead, Chris has always been a tidy, thoughtful, creative, kind of shy sort of guy. So from as young as he can remember, he's like, man, something seems different about me. And over the last couple of years, as he's gotten into his mid-teens and later teens, his discomfort with his internal sense of identity has been growing exponentially. And around this time, he started watching a bunch of videos on TikTok, and the videos are explaining that sometimes people are born into the wrong body. That their mind knows what their body apparently does not, that sometimes men are women and sometimes women are men. Now for Chris, this is like a breath of fresh air. 
Like this is the best news he's heard in almost his entire life because it finally offers an explanation and a path forward for his discomfort that he's been feeling for his entire life. He's like, oh, this makes so much sense. This explains why I've always felt different. And it gives me a solution that I can move towards that will alleviate a lot of that discomfort. So over time, Chris becomes convinced that his authentic self, the real Chris, is on the inside and it's actually female. So Chris starts to do some things that we call social transitioning. We'll talk more about the different types of transitioning in two weeks, but he does what we call social transitioning. So um, Chris in some safe places online, so not at school, not with his friend group or his family or anything like that, but in some safe places online, Chris starts to go by the name Allison instead of Chris, because Allison as a feminine name more uh, naturally aligns with his internal sense of self as a woman. Not only that, but Underneath his regular like guy clothes, he starts to wear some more feminine clothing, girls clothing. Nobody else knows about, nobody else sees. He's the only one who does because it alleviates, he can't even explain why, but it alleviates some of that internal discomfort that he's been feeling, all right? All right, I wanna just reiterate one final time in case there's any confusion. Chris is fictional. Chris does not exist, okay? This is a person that we made up in our imagination. However, every one of those little details that I just gave you about Chris is actually true of somebody who suffers from gender dysphoria or who is transgender. Like in, in books that I've read, in podcasts that I've listened to, interviews or conversations, these are all details that real life people have said they have gone through in their particular experiences. We just amalgamated them all together in Chris. Okay, with Chris in mind, I want to start by asking a question. It's a broad philosophical question, but it's super important, okay? Is it even possible for Chris to know what the experience of being a woman actually is like? So Chris says, I feel like a woman on the inside. That statement presupposes that as a biological male, he can know what it is like in the embodied, lived out experience of a biological female. Is it possible for one gender to so thoroughly understand the other gender that we could say, oh yeah, I'm one of y'all. Do men understand, can men understand women to the point that's like, yep, got y'all figured out. And in fact, I'm one of you. Can women understand men to the point that they would say, oh yeah, I get what it means to be a man. And in fact, I, I identify as that. Is that even possible? Some people say the answer is yes. So, you know, like gender theorists and stuff, they'll say, oh yeah, you can understand. The question that I have in response is how do you know? Like, how would I know that I do actually understand the lived embodied experience of a woman? How would I know that that's even possible? I've never been one. I've never been in their shoes, right? So it's hard to articulate, well, if this and this and this and this and this, you understand womanhood enough to become one or vice versa. You understood, you understand manhood enough to become one. If this is possible, okay, if it's possible for one gender to so thoroughly understand the experience of another that they can adopt it as their own, is that, does that translate to other differences between humanity as well? Like, I think that's a fair question, right? If me and my perspective can understand the perspective of somebody totally different, I can fully comprehend it and even take it as my own, then I should be able to do that with other differences as well, right? So let me ask a question. It's not a facetious question, genuine question here. Is it possible for white people to understand the lived experience of black people? 
Like some people will say yes. And if you say yes, that's fine. But you do have to explain how or why you believe that's true. Flip it around. Can black people understand the lived experience of white people? If you say yes, then you have to say, all right, well, you would know that you can if this, that, that, right? I think most of us would say probably not. Like we could, we might get close. We might understand some of it, but there's a lot that we couldn't because I've never been black and you've never been white or you've never been Filipino, right? Think about it like this. We could go another direction. Um, Can modern people really understand the way that ancient people thought and viewed the world? Right. Like, could we? Um, I, I think that we, we have this hubris to believe that we could. We're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally understand how those people back in the Bible times thought. They, they were simple folk, y'all. Bless their hearts. So simple. Bless their hearts. You know, but like, I could put myself in their shoes. I would just forget everything I know about science and the world and all that. And uh, yeah, I could think like somebody. No, you couldn't. Your mind, your thinking has been so shaped by the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution that frankly, I don't believe any of us would really be able to comprehend what it was like to be an ancient person. So if we, if we at least acknowledge that it would be real tough for a modern person to understand an ancient person, a white person to understand a black person, then couldn't we also acknowledge that it's at least possible that a man could never understand what it's really like to be a woman and a woman could never understand what it's like to be a man? Like, for goodness sake, y'all just realized that we think about the Roman Empire every week. You just learned that. You just learned that. So how can you? Anyway, all right, all right. That's a silly example. Okay. Stay with me now. This is, I think, one of the significant contradictions of current gender ideology. Okay. What you'll hear and read all the time is that cisgender people like me really cannot understand the experience of a transgender person. You just can't. You don't know what it's like. You don't understand how bad I feel. You don't understand how desperately I need something to change. You've never been in my shoes, so you can't possibly understand. And I agree. But transgender ideology relies on the assumption that a transgender person can understand what it's like to be a cisgender person. So it goes one way, but not the other, right? Like, I think that this is something that we really need to wrestle with. Are we confident that one gender can fully understand the other? That one type of person could accurately understand another to the point that they would adopt their identity as their own? Um, Let's assume for the sake of the discussion that it is possible because we need to keep moving forward. All right. Let's assume that Chris can know what it's like to be a woman. And that's how he knows that he is a woman. It leads to another question that we really do have to wrestle with. And that is, to what degree is Chris's ideas about womanhood, are they the result of cultural conditioning? Or we could broaden this a little bit. Like, to what degree is our concept of manhood and womanhood simply the result of the culture in which we were all born and raised? Right? This is, again, this is a super important conversation or question that needs to be asked. So let's go back to Chris for a moment. And um, for reasons of his own understanding, you're never going to make sense out of this, so don't even try. It's kind of beside the point. Chris loves the idea of wearing a skirt. That just, for some reason, it alleviates some of the gender dysphoria. It more naturally aligns with his internal sense of self as a woman. And so he loves the idea of wearing a skirt. Okay. So let me ask the question. Is wearing a skirt masculine or feminine? 
Is it indicative of a man or a woman, a male or a female? Well, in Canada, we would say, obviously, it's female, right? Like wearing a skirt is something that a woman does. If you want to buy a skirt at Winners, you have to go shop in the women's section, right? But what if Chris wasn't born in Canada? What if he was born in Scotland? Or what if Chris was born in the Pacific Islands? You see, then he's no longer wearing a skirt. He's wearing a kilt or a sarong. And in those cultures, he is positively dripping with masculinity, okay? (laughs) He's the manliest man on the island for wearing something that here would brand him as woman. See, a lot of the ideas that we have about what it even means to be a man or a woman They're simply based on our culture and cultures change over time and in different places around the world. Think about uh, Chris's favorite color, which is pink. Everybody knows that pink is a girl's color and uh, blue is a boy's color, right? We all know that. Everybody agrees. Every gender reveal party you've ever been to, (laughs) when they cut the cake, when they pop the balloon, when they shoot the confetti, when they splatter one another with paintballs. Man, gender, gender reveal parties are wild. wild. If it's blue, you know it's a boy. And if it's pink, you know it's a girl. Why? Because obviously pink is a girl's color and blue is a boy's color. That has only been the case for the last hundred years. Let me show you something. This is, uh, this is a clipping from Ladies Home Journal, which was like a, a magazine that existed back in the early 1900s. This particular uh, article is from 1918, and it was an advice column. So somebody wrote in, and they, you know, dear Abby, like, th- their question, and the question was this, like, what color should we decorate for our new baby? That was the question, pink or blue? Sh- which one should we use? And I want you to notice what the author says here. The author says pink being a more decided and stronger color is more suitable for the boy while blue, which is more delicate and dainty is prettier for the girl. Okay. So wait a sec. Our concepts of what's masculine and feminine, they not only change with geography, but apparently they change with time as well because things that we take for granted today as being clearly reflective of womanhood were reflected of manhood just a few decades ago. Consider names. I told you that Chris has been going online by the name Allison because Allison more accurately reflects his internal sense of self as a a woman. And I agree, Allison in North America in the the 20th, 21st century is definitely a feminine name, right? Um, There's actually, you can kind of uh, check this out for yourself. If you go to the U.S.'s Social Security Administration website, what they do is they track the name of every single baby that's born in the U.S., right? And they do that so they make sure they get taxes, all right? I still have to pay taxes in the U.S. It's ridiculous. I haven't lived there, earned money there in forever. Anyway, that's just a personal rant. I'm not going to get into it. But the reason they do this is they aggregate all the data, and we can look at the most popular names in any given year. So, like, as a parent, we can stay away from the really popular ones, so not everybody has a Bailey or something like that, all right? And we can look at the least popular names so that we can laugh at parents who name their kid, like, Subaru or something, all right? It's like, <laughs> whatever. 
Okay, so these exist. And, and, and if we look at some data on the name Allison, we find something really interesting. In the 1990s, Allison was one of the most common names given to babies that were born. And according to the US Social Security Administration, of the babies that were born in the 1990s that were given the name Allison at birth, 100% of them were female. But if we go to the 1880s, so 110 years before, the same governmental organization has the data on the name Allison. And in that decade, of every baby that was born and given the name Allison, 100% of them were male. Allison used to be a boy's name, and over time, it transitioned to become a feminine name. There are so many examples. It's like Gail is another good one. Every Gail you know is a girl, but Gail used to be a totally boy name, right? What I'm trying to communicate here is that a person like Chris says, I'm a female. I know it on, on the inside. And you say, okay, let's assume that you can know that. How do you know? What, what gives you the idea that you are feminine? Well, I like feminine things, feminine colors, feminine clothes, you know, all these different things. But all of that is culturally conditioned. Why are we so sure that Chris was born in the wrong body and not born in the wrong culture? Because if he had been born in a different culture, then a lot of the things that mark him as a feminine person would have marked him as a masculine person. So I think we need to pause when we start making ontological statements about ourselves, like statement about my being and existence. And it's based on factors that if we went to a different culture in the world, they would be like, that doesn't make you a man. That makes you a woman. That doesn't make you a woman. That makes you a man, right? There is this difference that exists. And I think we've got to kind of wrestle this to the ground. Okay. Um, one of the major issues with separating your mind from your body uh, and your sex from your gender is that it's impossible to define what gender means without resorting to changing cultural norms or flat sexual stereotypes. Like that's essentially, it's like, what does it mean to be a man? You'll start talking about somebody that seems like John Wayne, you know, what does it mean to be a woman? You'll start talking about somebody that seems stereotypically feminine. The problem is that doesn't accurately capture what it means to be a human being. This is why I think Christians actually have a very unique opportunity in the middle of this, this divide in which people flatten everything down and they point to one culture and say, oh, this culture has defined femininity the correct way, or this culture has defined masculinity in the right way. Um, rather than that, we, we can say, you know what? Like, let's not look at Drake or Andrew Tate as great examples of masculinity, okay? Let, let's look at somebody in the Bible, like maybe King David as a great example of what it means to be a man. See, on the one hand, King David was like a manly sort of dude, right? The Bible says that he was a shepherd. Like how, how manly is a farmer? Just picture a farmer with like dirt under his fingernails and calluses on his hand and he works the land and he produces something for a living. David was out in the field working. And then a little bit later in life, he became a, a soldier, but not just a soldier, Homie was a warrior, right? He went to battle against Goliath. He killed him single-handedly. He chopped off his head. All the other soldiers were scared to even go to war. David stepped up. He eventually became a king. He ruled the entire nation. He had multiple wives. He had more kids than I can even count. There are a lot of things about David that would lead you to say, now that is a manly man. 
And yet, the same scripture tells us that King David loved to play the harp. Now listen, I find it hard to imagine a less masculine instrument than a harp. Okay? I'm just telling you, like, you will never see an Old Spice deodorant commercial in which the guy is like, gentlemen, do you want to get all the ladies? Play a harp. They cannot resist it. No, because it's not masculine. David was one of the greatest poets that ever lived. He wrote some of the most beautiful rhymes and verses that anybody has ever seen. Do we normally think of poets as stereotypically masculine? No. There are several instances, one very notable one, in which the Bible says David was unafraid to weep openly in front of his male friends. Is that masculine? Is it feminine? Maybe it's just human. See, when we let our culture either dictate what it means to be a man and woman according to changing cultural norms, or we flatten them down into cartoonish stereotypes, we actually do a disservice to what it means to be human. Fellas, you are no less a man because you like watching The Bachelor. You're not less of a man because your voice is higher than most men's voice is. You're not less of a man because you didn't know that you had to loosen the lug nuts before you jacked the car up off the ground, okay? I know that's an oddly specific example. I have my reasons. (laughs) That doesn't make you less of a man. And ladies, it doesn't make you less of a woman because you're taller or you have more muscles than the average woman or because you don't like frilly dresses. You'd rather wear a baseball cap. That doesn't make you less of a woman. None of that matters. Those are things that any human on the planet can do and still reflect their God-given image. The Bible wants to call us beyond these simple stereotypes into a full, multidimensional, robust conception of what it means to just be a human being. That's why the Bible's primary invitation is not to act more like a man or more like a woman. It's to act more like Jesus. If you want to get right down to it, you're not going to find anything in the Bible that's like, be a better man. You need to be a better woman. No, it's just like, be Christ-like. Be Christ-like. The fruit of the Spirit are not defined by gender. You realize that, right? Christian men are supposed to be kind because Christ was kind. It's not a feminine trait to be gentle. No, that's a Christ-like trait. Sometimes men weep in front of other men. Sometimes women pick up a tent stake and drive it through the head of a tyrant. That's the book of Judges, okay? If you didn't know that, Judges 5. So in the scriptures, we see people doing all sorts of things that defy gender stereotypes because the call is not to be more like a man or more like a woman. It is to be more like Christ. As Christians, we can forget that the ultimate goal is not for someone's internal self to be conformed to their body. It is for their entire self to be conformed to the Savior. And listen, in that respect, Christians and transgender people have way more in common than we first assume. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes himself. Romans chapter number seven, very famous passage of scripture. I promise you've heard these if you've been in church any length of time at all. But I wonder if you've ever read them through the lens of gender ideology or particularly somebody who who possesses or has some sense of gender dysphoria. 
Paul writes Romans 7, 22 to 25, for in my inner self, oh, Paul's talking about his inner self. In my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Now, there is no evidence in the scripture at all that supports the idea that the Apostle Paul wrestled with gender dysphoria. I don't think that's what he has in mind here, okay? However, his words seem really appropriate for somebody who is wrestling with gender dysphoria. The sense of self and the sense of the body seem to be at war, and I'm a wretched, I don't know what to do. I'm so tired of feeling this way. Isn't there any hope? Aren't there any solutions? Who is going to save me from this miserable, wretched existence that I've been experiencing? And the Apostle Paul answers his own question. He says, thanks be to God, it's Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And the answer for Paul is the same answer for transgender people. It's the same answer for cisgender people. It's the same answer for everyone. We need more of Christ. We need to become more like Christ. The world doesn't need more manly men. They need more Christ-like men. It doesn't need more feminine women. It needs more Christ-like women. That's the target. That's the goal. That's what we're calling one another towards. So I want you to, this is important. Okay, don't miss what I'm about to say here. Both sides of the transgender uh, conversation, they, they really think or they claim that the solution is you just need to be your authentic self. Have you heard that phrase before? I have. It's all over the place. And if you pay close enough attention, you'll find people on both sides of the debate using that phrase, right? So one side, the traditional side will say, in order to be your authentic self, you need to align your mind with your body. That is the only way to be your authentic self and move forward. On the other side, they say, no, 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 no. The only way that you can be your authentic self is to forget about your body, focus on your mind. That's the real you. Be your authentic self. But I want you to look at what Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. See, the world calls you to be yourself. Christ calls you to deny yourself. And the call is the same whether you're transgender or cisgender. Deny yourself and become more like Christ. The call is the same whether you're single or you're married. You need to deny yourself and become more like Christ. It's true and it's the same whether you're young or you're old, you're Easterner or Westerner, rich or poor. The call is the same for every person. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. This has some implications and some important ones. If you're a Christian and you're on the more traditional side of the gender ideology debate, okay, you may need to ask the Holy Spirit whether or not there's some repentance that needs to occur inside of your heart this morning. Because I'm just going to call it like it is. It is hypocritical to tell a transgender person that they need to deny themselves if you're not denying yourself. Listen, if you're not denying yourself sexually, why tell them they need to deny themselves sexually? If you're not denying yourself when it comes to your your finances, if you're not denying yourself when it comes to your personal health, then we've got no business telling somebody else to deny themselves. This may be part of the reason that we're not taken very seriously. 
because we're calling people to deny themselves based on Christ's words, and it's pretty easy to see that we are not doing a great job of it on our own. So like, there may be, like, I have some repentance in my heart. I was convicted by this word. I'm like, oh, geez, God, I wish you hadn't shown me this, all right? And if you're, if you're on the more modern side of this issue, the more progressive side, particularly if you experience some sort of gender dysphoria yourself, if you experience a disconnect between your biological sex and your internal gender, then I want you to, it's so important that you realize that God's plan for you is progressive, not regressive. Because you can hear what we're saying this week and next. You can hear Christians talking and you can say, yep, that's what I thought they were going to say, that God wants me to go back. He wants to take me back to the place that I've been trying to escape from for decades, the place where I'm not at home in my own body, the place where I hate myself, where I feel completely out of alignment, that yeah, God wants to take me back. No, no, God is calling you forward. He is not calling you to become simply cisgender. That's not his goal. His goal is to call you towards Christ. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Anyone who's in Christ will go back to the way it was, but this time they'll get it right. No, you're something new. You're something different. You're something even better. And the thing that Christ is calling you to is the same thing he's calling me to. See, Christ wants to create people in which these really superficial differences don't form the basis of our identity. Christ wants to call you to the point that your gender or your biological sex is not the most important thing about you. Christ wants to call you to the point that who you're attracted to is not the most important thing about you. That your identity is not made up of how much money you earn or your job title or which country you were born into or what language it is that you speak. He wants to call you into an identity in which your status as one of his sons or daughters is the most fundamental and important thing about you. He's calling you to something. He's not asking you to admit that the conservatives and the traditional folk are right. He's calling you way beyond all of that into something even better than you might ever imagine. Here's what I have found from my personal experience. The solutions that Christ offers to me are far better than anything else I find in the world around me. Not because I'm gender dysphoric. I really haven't had that experience, but man, I've got my own issues there have been times in my life where I pursued solutions from the world and I was left feeling even worse. But every time I have said yes to Jesus, every time I have denied myself so that I could take up my cross and follow him, I've been better for it. That doesn't make it easy. It is brutally difficult to deny yourself. But Jesus promises us that denying ourself is the path to fulfillment. It is the path towards a world in which everyone is able to flourish the way that God always intended. So he's not calling you back. He's calling you forward. He's not calling you to become like them. He's calling you to become like him. That, that's a journey worth taking. Jesus, I come to you today confessing my own hypocrisy. There are places in my life in which I do not deny myself knowing full well that your word calls me to. And I'm sorry for that. I repent of that. I acknowledge it to you and I claim your promise from 1 John that if we confess our sin, you're faithful and just to forgive it. And so God, I confess my sin. I pray that others will as well today, just in the honesty of their heart speaking to you to acknowledge that like the call has always been to die to self so we can live to you. So God, help us to do that every single day.
And God, I pray for those that are here and maybe they do suffer from that gender dysphoria. God, would you help them to see Jesus as the hope that they've been seeking? That transitioning isn't going to give them the, the fullness and satisfaction that they thought it would. That the answers may not be what TikTok tells them. But God, instead, it's what you've revealed in your word. And you call us back to that baseline understanding of who we are because of who you are. And so I'm just praying somebody today would experience freedom from that internal distress they've been carrying around. And they would understand it's because they're sensing your spirit, they're hearing your voice, and they're bringing themselves more in alignment with you. Oh, God, set us free today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Each, um, each service, I'm giving you guys a couple of resources that you can kind of put in your back pocket, take with you. If you want to do a little further dive, remember, each of these are curated for the content of that week's message. So these two resources today are particularly around um, the idea of the internal sense of identity and self in the mind or gender more generally. So if you want to know more about that, uh, I would encourage you to pick up the book Embodied by Dr. Preston Sprinkle. You can find that on Amazon. It's like seven bucks on Kindle or something. It is my go-to resource on transgender issues. I've put it in probably four or five parents' hands in our church um, when their kids come home saying they're non-binary or, you know, whatever the case may be. Uh, It is traditionally Christian. It holds to a traditional understanding of gender, but it does it in such a kind and loving way. And that initial question, when somebody experiences a disconnect between their body and mind, which one is the real them, came from that book. It's eye-opening. The second one is finding your best identity from Andrew Bunt. Andrew Bunt is just like a normal dude that lives in the UK. And um, his entire life, he's experienced gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction, but he's also a committed Christian. And so out of his desire to honor Jesus as Lord of his life, he has committed his life to being celibate because he doesn't feel that he could live as another gender or in a same-sex relationship and truly follow Jesus. And so if you ever listen to me and you're like, dude, you don't understand what I go through. You're right. I don't, I don't know what that's like. Um, so there's always going to be gaps in my ability to, to comprehend where you're living right now. But somebody like Andrew Bunt, he speaks from experience. And so that's another really worthwhile book. I'd highly encourage you guys to pick it up. Okay. Um, next week, again, we're going to be talking more about the body and why the body really becomes the, the, the good guide that God has given us against which we measure all of our thoughts and feelings and cultural expectations. So it's be another good week. I hope to see you then.